Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 2nd, 2013. My guest today is Richard Fisher, president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Richard, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been um, an outspoken critic of the way policymakers have dealt with the so-called too-big-to-fail problem. I want to start with too-big-to-fail. What is the problem and which banks does it apply to today? Well, the problem is that we have uh, banks that are of the size and scale in which uh, senior management of those banks, despite their risk management models and high mathem- mathematized uh, ways to try to track things, have, in my opinion, lost track of the basic principle of banking, which is know your customer and know your risk. So we also have institutions that have learned by practice that if they lose track of their risk and track of their customers uh, and make significant errors, they expect to be bailed out by the United States taxpayer. Uh, these are called too big to fails. So give uh, us- legislation was passed. Legislation was passed that meant to deal with it. It was written by Senator Dodd, who's no longer in the Senate, and uh, Congressman Frank, who's no longer in the Congress. Uh, but uh, in the very preamble of that legislation, it said that this is to deal with the issue of too big to fail and put it to an end. I don't believe it has. I believe that we've created a bureaucratic structure that uh, will continue this process and problem. And the real objective that we have at the Dallas Fed in proposing an alternative, which I'm happy to discuss with you, is to eliminate the risk that the taxpayer will be called upon once again should one of these large institutions get into trouble to bail them out and also to eliminate the risk that monetary policy becomes the handmaiden of the big rich institutions rather than of the rest of the country. Well, I want to get into your solution, but before we do, I want to have you give us an overview of the banking industry, which you've done in some of your recent speeches, and we'll put up a link to those speeches. They're they're very uh, – they're educational and entertaining. Give us an overview <laughs> – Give us an overview of the banking system and, and what a small portion of that system we're talking about in terms of number of banks, but what's such a large portion in terms of assets? Well, we have some 6,000 banks uh, in the United States, and uh, yet we have concentrated in the hands of literally one handful of institutions of the same amount of assets that you have in the other nearly 6,000 community and regional banks. So we have a very highly concentrated sector. Um, and basically what I have been advocating, what we at the Dallas Fed have been advocating is that rather than be preoccupied with institutions that are considered too big to fail because should they fail, should they get themselves into trouble, it would put the economy at risk because of the high concentration in very few hands, that instead we structure the law so that we have institutions that are too small to save. That doesn't mean we would not be internationally competitive. Uh, There's great specialization that can occur and perform different functions. Uh, The markets, as you know, have been fully developed in terms of the non-depository markets, meaning the bond markets, the stock markets. Large institutions have a great way of financing through using markets and not just uh, their bank creditors. But the point is that we have an unlevel playing field. And if you're a small or medium-sized bank and you get into trouble, you are closed on Friday and opened on Monday. That's the standard FDIC rule. Some of them take a little bit longer. But these large institutions, as we learned the last time around during the panic, should they get themselves into trouble, um, they're perpetuated. I just don't think that is democratic or fair or proper, nor is it economically sound. 
Well, some people would say, I think they're wrong just as a preamble, but some people would say, well, they're not perpetuated. Bear Stearns is gone. Lehman Brothers went through bankruptcy. It just, you know, we can handle it. And they didn't, they yep. didn't, they didn't get rewarded. They either, they dis, their equity holders were wiped out. Their management lost a lot of money. What's your position on that? Well, they were swallowed by somebody else. So you end up with a bigger bank and a JP Morgan or bigger bank and XYZ bank. And again, I want to make clear that I don't think the management of these institutions, I just mentioned one, I think Jamie Dimon is a first rate individual. He's a personal friend. I hold him in high regard in terms of his personal integrity. It's not a matter of evil individuals. It's just the way these institutions are uh, called upon to rescue somebody else and in the end receive subsidies in terms of lower cost of funding because of their size and because of their uh, dimension. And also um, from the standpoint of uh, an implicit thought, if not guarantee, that should they get into trouble, they will be bailed out. So my biggest concern is these complex financial bank holding companies should all, on the depository side, in the banking side, what we consider commercial banking, should be treated in the same way as smaller and uh, regional banks. So this is a subject that we have been discussing at great length. Incidentally, it's a subject that joins both the left and the right. Um, it is something that I find is of great interest to, say, Tea Party Republicans, just as it is to the new senator from Massachusetts, um, so who is by no means a Tea Party advocate. Correct. Uh, so it's one issue that unites people from a bipartisan standpoint. And I think it's something where the Congress can actually do something about this, and that's the proposal that we've made. Now, how much of a role do you think the expectation of a bailout played in the leverage that we saw in the run-up to the crisis in large financial institutions? Did we see that kind of leverage in smaller institutions that were small enough to fail? Well, no, because if a small institution gets into trouble, no one's going to bail them out. And we did have banks fail. Um, but – uh, so, and, and there's also a difference in ownership structure. Many of the small institutions, the shareholders themselves are a smaller group, have more direct knowledge of what's happening uh, with the risks that the institution is taking. But in these very large institutions, of course, they're widely disaggregated in terms of their ownership. But the point is simply this. Um, too big to fail banks don't face a whole lot of external discipline from their unsecured creditors. Um, and an important facet of too big to fail is that funding source for these mega banks extend far beyond insured deposits. As, uh, and you could see during the period of crisis, the CDS spreads, these are the um, spreads on in terms of the measurement of risk and insurance on these institutions were widening, uh, beginning very dramatically uh, very early on, in fact, late in 2007. Um, so, um, you would expect that some market discipline was being applied, but in the end, these institutions were bailed out. Now, the law claims that that will not happen again, but experience points us in a different direction. And all we want to make sure of here at the Dallas Fed is that indeed it is clear that the only taxpayer exposure would be through the commercial banking depository institution and the other aspects of a complex bank holding company would be totally at risk. And we believe that if that is made clear and simple, uh, that then the market will sort out who actually is good at their broker dealer operation or their insurance subsidiary or their other uh, subsidiaries other than the commercial bank. And the CDS you that referred to? a market risk, sir? The, the CDS you referred to are credit default swaps, which were a measure, yes, a measure of how likely uh, it was that that a bank would fail, and, and if if I remember correctly, uh, when Bear Stearns failed, um, Lehman Brothers credit default swaps. That is the expectation that Lehman would fail rose quickly, but then it, it, once Bear Stearns turned out that that their creditors were going to get all their money back, hundred cents on the dollar because J.P. Morgan Chase was taking them. Uh, they got quiet again, and, and Lehman Brothers was a 
was borrowing money at the same rate as firms that were, it would seem, much less risky. In particular, the question I want to get your opinion on, then we'll move to your solution. Um, The bailouts of 2008, and I'm talking now about Bear Stearns, AIG, uh, Fannie and Freddie, these were large financial institutions that had borrowed enormous sums of money, and the lenders uh, got all their money back 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, The only exception was uh, Lehman, which was quickly Mm -hmm. decided to be a mistake to have that happen. That was – that had Lehman had to go through bankruptcy proceedings. But the, the question is, why do you think the government and policymakers were so unwilling to let creditors take any kind of so-called haircut that they would have to bear some of the price for having funded and financed such bad investments? That's the $64 trillion question, just to modernize the $64,000 question. Um, again, Perry – and bear in mind, I'm a Texan, and I look at it from a Main Street perspective, but very New York-centric, uh, a deep belief that these institutions, particularly uh, the big ones in New York, uh, if they were to get into trouble, if they were to fail, then they would bring down the rest of the system. And as you just noted those different names, of course, you realize those institutions that you just cited were not regulated by the Federal Reserve. They were brought into the Federal Reserve System when they were acquired by the kind of institutions that we do regulate. So uh, they went from being subject to what I would hope would have been significant oversight. It appears that they were not. Secondly, market discipline into a system where you had a lender of last resort, which is the Federal Reserve. That provides a different level of comfort. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's important to note first, we weren't regulating those institutions. They were poorly regulated. They were poorly overseen. Uh, secondly, they were subject to market discipline and then they were merged into, uh, uh, institutions that are overseen by the fed and with a federal reserve as a central bank during a time of a panic, as all central bankers have done going all the way back to the early 19th century. Uh, are the lenders of last resort. It changes the discipline. And yet the moderate-sized banking institutions, the community banking institutions, of which there are nearly 6,000 if you add those two groups together, uh, don't have that kind of protection. So it's an unlevel playing field, and it's unfair. Well, I, I'm not so interested in the levelness of the playing field. I, and I don't – I mean, a level playing field is a good thing in general, but I, I certainly wouldn't want – the smaller banks to get the benefit of the subsidies. That'd be the wrong way to make it level. I think the bigger problem is that they're not we, only getting they're not only getting the benefit of the subsidies, they're put at a competitive disadvantage. True. But and but to me that, the more that's dis- what's the more disturbing issue is the uh besides the fact that the taxpayers ended up being on the short end of billions of dollars, equally disturbing to me is that we incentivized scarce capital to be used for stuff that wasn't so productive and uh that can't be That's good for a good point it, it drives me nuts when people say oh, we, we have to have a we have to have a, a competitive banking system how about an effective banking system uh you know when people say europe, <laughs> you europe like you've been reading my speeches <laughs> yeah well i have you know europe is you know europe's going to get take this sector away from us and my answer is let them <laughs> why, why does american well, prosperity no, or, or, depend on that let's remember also russ Remember, we went through this period where we were all worried that the French would have the biggest banks in the world. This is many, many years ago. It didn't work. Then it was Japan would have the biggest banks in the world. That didn't work. Now, you know, then I would hear arguments against my position or our position at the Dallas Fed saying, but then the Chinese will pick up everything. Well, let their taxpayer bear the risk. Yeah, be great. Let their people bear the risk. And, And by the way, if they do and it's bad business practice, they will pay the price ultimately. I don't want the American taxpayer to pay that price. So let's turn to your solution. Uh, there are a lot of solutions out there. I'm going to get – after you talk about yours, I'm going to ask you to comment on some of the others that have been put forward. This would be a way to reduce the probability of the kind of bailouts that were, quote, necessary. I'm not even sure they were necessary, but certainly policymakers felt they were necessary, and certainly many economists have justified them, arguing that a, a catastrophe was prevented. I'm agnostic on that or a little bit skeptical, but put that to the side – what do you see? You have a three-part uh, proposal to try to reduce the odds of having to do this again. 
Give us, uh, right. lay it out. How would it work? Okay. Well, consider, first of all, what we're talking about. We're talking about very complex financial holding companies. So you have uh, a bank holding company that has the commercial bank and then the non-bank subsidiaries of that bank holding company, say an investment bank is the old terminology. You have security subsidiaries, you have insurance subsidiaries, you have uh, real estate subsidiaries and so on. I would, our proposal, under our proposal, only the commercial bank would have access to deposit insurance provided by the FDIC and only would have access to discount window loans provided by the Federal Reserve. These two features of the safety net would explicitly, by statute as we would propose, become unavailable to any of the shadow banking affiliates, that is the special investment vehicles of the commercial bank or any obligations of the parent holding company that has these complex other subsidiaries that I mentioned earlier. Um, so that's the, the first aspect of our proposal. Make it simple. Uh, the only exposure that you would have would be the deposit-taking institution under a complex bank holding company. And then to reinforce the statute that we propose and the credibility of the proposal with regard to the other aspects of those large complex holding companies, financial holding companies, um, every customer, every creditor, every counterparty of every one of those other bank affiliates and of the senior bank holding company would be required to agree to and sign a new covenant. Uh, it's a simple disclosure statement uh, that acknowledges their unprotected status. And it's we on even a drafted one up. It's on a postcard, right? Yep, and I'll read it to you. It's very simple. Please do. I can do it by memory. Warning, colon. Conducting business with this affiliate of the XYZ Bank Holding Company carries no federal deposit insurance or other federal government protection or guarantees, period. I, the counterparty, fully understand that in conducting business with XYZ Banking Affiliate, I have no federal deposit insurance or other federal government protection or guarantees, and my investment is totally at risk. That's it. Now, I know Congress can't write things that simply. They have to make them horribly complicated. <laughs> it's, too it's too short. It's too short. So, uh, by the way, I'm not proposing reinstalling Glass-Steagall. That was my next question. What I'm question. saying is, well, that's not what we're saying here. We're saying let these people operate. Uh, and those that – I think if you did this, the market discipline would come to be applied to those other subsidiaries in a way that would allow some people to continue to practice because they're good at doing it. And others would sort of fall by the wayside. But I, I do think this two-part step, it's really a two-part step that I recommended, two-part program, would begin to remove the implicit too-big-to-fail subsidies provided these bank holding companies and their shadow banking operations. Because again, entities other than the commercial banks, in my view, in our view at the Dallas Fed, have inappropriately benefited from an implicit safety net. So can The we... safety net is still in place. Yeah, I know. So let's take an example of an actual institution. I'll use one with an actual name, and you can change it to XYZ Bank if you'd like. But I'm going to use the example of Citibank. Citibank, I can go and I can make a deposit and have a checking account there and have a, a savings account. And that currently is FDIC protected. What would change? What parts of these complex institutions would not be protected that currently or that were, say, in 2008? Well, uh, if my memory is correct, at mid-2012, so a year ago, Citigroup had total non-deposit liabilities of over $800 billion. By the way, that's 5.2% of GDP. Not that that's a key indicator, but it's an interesting indicator. They had over 3,500 subsidiaries, and they operated in 93 countries. So... Uh, $816 billion in non-deposit liabilities. So remember, under our proposal, Dow said only the commercial bank, so the deposit liabilities, would have access to deposit insurance provided by the FDIC. Discount window loans provided by the Federal Reserve would be limited only to that commercial banking operation. So those other subsidiaries, and by the way, Citigroup has made significant progress in shedding a lot. But at that time, I'm speaking from memory here, uh, and I'm, I know those numbers pretty well, uh, all those total non-bank liabilities, over $800 billion, would not be subject to the safety net. Um, 
And uh, the two features of the safety net would explicitly, by statute, have become, under our proposal, unavailable to any of those affiliates or special investment vehicles or other obligations of the parent holding company, which I'll refer to as XYZ Bank. So the only problem I have with that – and by the way, I think it's a great idea, and we'll talk about some of the other pluses and minuses of it in a minute, mm-hmm. as well as the competing ideas for making this problem better. But it's kind of the world we lived in in 2006, 2007, 2003. In theory, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was not – didn't get FDIC insurance for its activities. Goldman Sachs didn't didn't have insurance on AIG. Uh, they thought they kind of did sort of a little bit maybe, which was they had some credit default swaps <laughs> to protect them. They at least could say they were protected. But, of course, that those probably would have fallen apart if, if AIG had been allowed to go through market discipline. And, of course, those banks wouldn't be allowed to go to the lender of last resort window of the Fed because they're not commercial banks. But they very quickly called them, you know, were converted into commercial banks on paper so they could play at the Fed's sands in the, in the Fed's sandbox. That's why, right. You're, you're right. Goldman Sachs petitioned us and became a bank holding company. So why would this uh, idea, which is basically, I'm not going to be naughty anymore. I'm going to be a good boy, and I'm not going to give you. I'm not going to reward you for your your malfeasance uh, banking community. Why would it be enforced? Why would that statute be enforced? Well, I think it had to be enforced in practice. And let's not use the word – well, you could use malfeasance, but at least misfeasance. Sorry, that was a bad choice. I, I yeah. agree. Uh, I, I, I think mal is a bit strong, but I don't want to be rude. I think misfeasance and, and just bad management. Um, so wh- why should the U.S. taxpayer compensate them for bad decisions? Uh, and I think it's fascinating that Goldman Sachs came to us, to the Federal Reserve – you know, wanted to become a bank holding company. And then as soon as we got through the process of uh, the crisis, they wanted to shed that status. I think that in of itself, again, these aren't bad people. They're doing what's best to preserve their franchise. Uh, that's the way the system works. But I find it of interest that that's, that was the conduct that they pursued. And if you bring them into becoming a bank holding company, then uh, you're providing this kind of unlimited protection. Now, the way the system has changed under Dodd-Frank is you created this special body that is chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury that oversees systemically important financial institutions, CIFIs. As you know, my little joke is it sounds like something – a CIFI sounds like something you contract through bad behavior. Yeah. Um, but the point is that committee, the chairman of the Federal Reserve serves on that committee and plays a very important role but is ultimately chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury. And whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, if the Secretary of the Treasury is facing an institution that is still too large, gets itself into trouble, I doubt any president, Republican or Democrat, is going to let that Secretary of the Treasury allow the institution to fail. So uh, I don't believe the problem has been solved. How would your solution make that any better? And let me give you an example of why I worry about it. Um the F in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that first letter, stands for federal. But of course, on paper, in theory, actually, I think by congressional um, dictate, the Congress disavowed any F part of Fannie or Freddie when they would talk about Fannie and Freddie. And I say talk when they would have legislation about Fannie and Freddie, they would always have a disclaimer that nothing about Fannie and Freddie. The fact that the word federal was in their name should be taken to mean that they would be rescued in the event of a problem. Of course, they were rescued. That exactly. that statement, that statement, which was not quite a statute, but it was an explicit statement, was taken by investors with a wink. And I worry that your solution will have the same thing. You'll sign that disclaimer, that warning, that beautiful, nice, simple warning statement that that you understand that your money is at risk here, but you'd. You'd be winking maybe when you, when you signed it. Well, that's always a risk, and I think you just have to have a strict implementation. You, know, you have to, as with anything, the way you gain credibility is through practice. The practice that has been instituted so far has been to bail people out. That's what we saw. Or to merge them into something larger, which then becomes even more too big, if there is such a word, to fail. 
uh, and the measures that have been taken to address it is a law that is so complicated that we estimate and others have estimated as well takes some 24 million man and women hours just to interpret and implement. So uh, in the end, it comes down to what you state and the conviction with which you state it and then the way you follow through with practice uh, over time. I mean, I hope these institutions don't get into trouble. I have seen, uh, you mentioned a specific bank earlier, City. They've actually taken action to shed some of their subsidiaries that are uh, outside the banking field. I expect that if you state with conviction what we have suggested and you make it clear and it is passed and dealt with by the Congress, uh, whether it's put forward by Elizabeth Warren or it's put forward by the Republican senator from Louisiana, whoever it may be, um, the market would begin to price in some of the risks that they actually see, and then we'd have to see what ensues. But again, you don't know until push comes to shove. And all I can tell you right now is, despite the honest and good and sincere efforts of the new legislation, I don't believe the system has really significantly changed. We do at the Federal Reserve have uh, uh, more oversight and regulation. We embed more people in these institutions. We have a very strong individual in uh, our governance structure, uh, Dan Tarillo, who is eager to make sure that capital requirements are tight, that liquidity requirements are significant. Uh, but um, in the end, you still have these very large behemoth institutions. That put the taxpayer at risk. Yeah, I'm going to make a suggestion You're, that it's going to sound like a joke. It's not a joke. I want you, I want an honest response. It seems to me that one way to improve the likelihood that these promises would be kept by pol both policymakers and that the expectations would be set for the players, the lenders and, and investors involved, I, I think it would be interesting to think about having a public ceremony where investors of a certain magnitude, so let's say uh, a bank, uh, a financial institution lending to another financial institution, which is very common, especially in the overnight market, which is part of the problem we got into. So you have, say, uh, say Citi or J.P. Morgan Chase financing activities by 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 the other. Uh, I think a public ceremony where you signed that warning statement and said, "We recognize." that we, by making this investment, put our money and those of our investors at risk, and we will not accept money from the federal government, and we will not accept a bailout, uh, would at least increase the chances that there'd be some shame and other costs, humiliation, that might help it be enforced. You know, it's interesting. In my district, uh, after TARP came out, uh, the second largest bank in this Federal Reserve District, Frost Bank, took out ads that were extremely effective and billboards saying, we turn down and don't need government money. And it helped them grow market share. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yours is not a silly idea because it actually is – and you saw that elsewhere in the country, by the way. Well, Ford, well, for a while, very short while, bragged about the fact that they did not uh, get rescued like uh, – yeah. GM and Chrysler, and I think there was political pressure on them not to brag about it, and they yeah. stopped. Well, uh, Texans don't bend very much under political <laughs> pressure. So. <laughs> Mr. Evans, I think, who's the CEO of Frost, was very pugnacious about it. Let's talk about some of the other proposals. Uh, the two that, that come to mind are larger capital requirements, uh, which a number of uh, EconTalk guests have advocated for in the past, and also capping the size of banks as a way to avoiding the too big to fail. So putting some sort of cap. What do, what are your, what do you feel about those solutions, so-called solutions? Um, the latter is interesting, but I personally want to be careful that we have the least amount of government intervention as possible and have the most market-driven solution. And I believe our proposal would lead to more market-driven rationalization. At least I would hope it would do that, and I, I kind of worry about doing things by government fiat. That's just a personal uh, concern that I have. The former proposal uh, is interesting and not unimportant, perhaps necessary, but I don't believe sufficient. When you have 
uh, a, a panic or a liquidity run. Um, you know, capital cushions, I'm not sure they're sufficient or could ever be sufficient to really prevent the panic from happening. If someone whispers that the Roberts Bank is going under and it begins to gain credence, you can be as well capitalized as you can imagine. Uh, but if you're dependent on short-term funding, you can be swamped. This is one of the reasons why, again, the Federal Reserve, and as articulated by Governor Trillo, has expressed concern about the uh, liquidity profile of many of these institutions and the need to tighten up uh, the requirements for that. It's also one of the reasons that uh, some have proposed, particularly when they take risks with derivatives, the larger the book gets, that they need to be subject to higher margins. And I find that somewhat attractive, but I don't think it solves the problem. The problem is you have institutions, a handful, that, by the way, comprise 0.2% of all the banks in the country. Um, that's two-tenths of 1% of all the banks in the country but that are um, too big to manage. The scale and scope of these institutions are too big to understand. They're too complex. Even I'm convinced senior management does not know what's going on in those institutions. So um, you can have big capital cushions. That's the approach that's been taken so far. You certainly should have um, the bigger their risk is, just as you would with a hedge fund, anybody else, you should have higher margin requirements as they become larger and larger. That exerts some discipline. But in the end, the ultimate root problem is scale and scope. And if you're so big, it's very hard to get back to basic principle of banking, which is know your customer, know your risk. And that's what I would like to see achieved. Before we move on to monetary policy, I want to make sure I've got um, the full range of what you would, would advocate We've talked about two parts, the only the uh, depository commercial bank part of any institution would be FDIC insured and would have access to the window of the uh, the Fed discount. discount window. And the second part is that uh, people who who made uh, – who were creditors of those institutions, these large institutions would concede on paper and sign a – a warning that they had received. It's kind of like when you leave the emergency room, they don't want you to leave. You have to say, look, I know I'm uh, I'm going against medical advice. So you have to you'd, – you'd, you'd make them sign something saying, I understand this. My money's at risk and I'm not going to get access to, to the taxpayer's money. Mm -hmm. uh, two questions. Is, is there a third part to the proposal and and how do you and, – and side questions on the part about the discount window. How would you monitor that? Well, first of all, we have 12 Federal Reserve banks. They all operate discount windows, so it's pretty easy for the Federal Reserve to monitor that. They're the ones that extend the credit. Um, you, how would you decide, quote, who gets it when I'm when – I'm, uh, Well, you have, you have supervision and regulatory authority, and you, um, you'd make it clear that this is – any violation of this would lead to a cutoff of access to the discount window. I don't think it's that complicated, uh, but um, – that would be the rule and the requirement, and somebody that violated it would be violating the rule or the requirement. It would be a regulatory infraction, and there would be discipline. So that, that is our proposal. I think that is, in essence, it's a two-part proposal. The, 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 the remaining issue is do you, do you give any government shove in terms of what you suggested, which is limiting size? And uh, although... It was suggested that we were, and this is what the banking lobby likes to put out, Dallas Fed was saying any bank over $250 billion would be prohibited. That is not our suggestion and has never been our suggestion. So the question is, does the government need to give a little shove to the marketplace, if you believe governments can give a shove to the marketplace, to make sure that indeed we end up with a group of institutions that are too small to save rather than too big to fail? Um, I'd rather see the market exert its discipline through the two-part proposal we've made before making a judgment as to what other push you might need in terms of government intervention to possibly realign incentives or to reestablish a competitive landscape and level the playing field. But I'm not willing at this point to suggest that step. 
Yeah, my view on it is that until there's a presidential candidate who makes this a central issue, who stands on this promise, who, after winning, makes it clear that uh, his or her credibility depends on honoring the statute that you're talking about, which if it has ever passed, then I think you could get somewhere. Otherwise, I worry, you know, again, we're back in the world of, well, we had to do it because the whole country was going to be destroyed and et cetera. But it's imaginable that such a political change could occur. And my view has always been that unless there's a simple policy that Main Street understands, it's unlikely any president will get behind a complex, uh, say, Basel III style uh, regulatory regime. You're right. So I think the simplicity of your idea is what recommends it as much as anything else. May I just add one more thing in terms of that consideration? I was amazed that neither presidential candidate in the last election picked up this ball. Let me give you a number that's indicative of how this would cut across lines, partisan lines. Um, I engaged in a IC squared debate in, in, New York. And um, in the audience itself, as you know, these things are recorded, we garnered 49% of the vote. Before or after? After. In support of your position? Yes. But here's the important part. Those are the people sitting in the audience, of which I noticed several familiar faces from the clearinghouse. (laughs) In fact, one came up to me afterwards. I had referred to XYZ Bank. The question had to do with J.P. Morgan. And he said, by the way, I'm the chief financial officer at J.P. Morgan. So how do you think he voted? Now, when you look at the online voting from that debate, that is all the voters, 83% voted for our proposal. 17% voted against. Again, as I said earlier, you have Elizabeth Warren, not considered a conservative by any means, proposing exactly what Senator Vitter from Louisiana, who is a Tea Party conservative, so this does cut across lines. It's a it's an issue that can actually unify Congress when they can't agree on anything. And I think it is highly politically palatable. But setting aside the politics, because this is – I am a central banker, not a politician. The point is that it needs to be done. Well, I think the frightening thing is that you asked it as a rhetorical – I think you said it's a statement. I'm surprised neither presidential candidate brought it up, and I, I think we know yeah, the reason. Money. And the reason is money, <laughs> and the reason is where – their bread is buttered, and uh, until that changes, maybe um, until there's, I, you know, I'm a big fan of shame, but let's that's not what this our conversation is about. So let's move on. Okay, <laughs> Let, let's uh, let's turn to monetary policy. Give me your, um, and you're you're not a retired central banker. You are a very active. Um, you're the president of the Dallas Fed, one of the twelve regional banks. And if I understand it correctly, you're going to be a voting member of the Federal uh, Open Market Committee, Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, starting sometime soon. Yeah, that's uh, right, January. So uh, I'd like your assessment as as openly as you can give it as to the last uh, five years of monetary policy. Uh, it's been an extraordinary time, uh, unparalleled really, in terms of the Fed's balance sheet growth and in some of the discretion that's taken place. So what do you think of that? Well, we are we have ventured into territory that no central bank's been in before. Others have followed suit, but we have been in the lead. The intentions are sincere. That is to lift up the economy from a seemingly uh, endemic low growth period. Help, given the franchise we've been given by Congress, which is so-called dual mandate, which means we're responsible for price stability, but also Achieving, and by the way, the phraseology in the congressional language under the Act of 1978, the Amended Federal Reserve Act, is, quote, shall maintain long-run growth of the monetary and credit aggregates commensurate with the economic economy's long-run potential to increase production so as to promote the effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. Um, piece of so, cake. Piece of cake, that's right. So now the, the key operative word, and my colleague Charles Plosser made an excellent speech the other day on this, is long run. But we are, um, we did have to go to work as central banks do as the lender of last resort, as I mentioned earlier, during the crisis, you open the floodgates, you're supposed to lend against good collateral. We 
actually did patch together the system when everything failed from overnight bank lending to uh, money market funds to the banker, uh, excuse me, commercial paper market, et cetera. We did our job. Uh, then we went on to a, a quantitative easing after interest rates were cut to zero. And just to be clear, I was against cutting interest rates to zero because the question is, what bullets do you fire next? Well, the bullets that were pulled out of the, the holster was quantitative easing. We purchased uh, mortgage-backed securities to get that market started. It was an asset allocation decision. I have argued, others have argued, that the Federal Reserve should not be involved in that business of deciding which assets you invest in. But uh, I will admit I supported the very first tranche of our mortgage-backed securities to get that market turned, and we did. Uh, but we are now buying $85 billion a month in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. I have been against that program. I'll continue to be against that program. Uh, and mainly because I don't think the benefits are uh, equal to the costs of our having printed so much money and expanded our balance sheet to over $4.2 trillion. It was a little less than $900 billion before the crisis started. And now we have a significant portfolio. When we buy a bond, a treasury bond or treasury note, and when we buy a mortgage-backed security, we pay for it, and that puts money out in the system. That money has come back to us in terms of excess reserves. So it's not being lent out, either because there's not sufficient demand for it or because of, you know, a, a bankers are slowly getting back to have their confidence to lend. Whatever the reason, it's being stored up as excess reserves. And if you think in terms of the language of our amended Federal Reserve Act 1978, we're required to think in the long term. And what worries me about the long term is we do have, and we've talked about, and we have an exit strategy to deal with this, but it's a theoretical exit strategy. It's never been done before. Yeah. And I'm worried about the long-term consequences of having all that money sitting on the sidelines. These are in depository institutions, as well as significant amounts of money sitting in private equity firms and sitting in hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera, outside our purview. That's a lot of tinder. Uh, if velocity were to pick up, how do we tamper it, tamper down, tamp it down so that it doesn't lead to inflationary impulses? Right now, inflation is not an issue, but our charge given to us by the Congress says long run, long run, long run. And that's what I'm worried about. Those are the costs that I'm worried about. And the benefits, well, I, I'll be blunt about this. Uh, and Mr. Druckenmiller said this on television the other day. This is great for rich people. It's great for Warren Buffett, bless his heart. He's a good investor, good for Mr. Druckenmiller and others. They get money for free. It hasn't done what we wanted it to do, which is lead to greater job creation for the two middle-income quartiles. Some people refer to the middle class. I don't like the word class because I believe America is a classless society. But the middle-income quartiles, other than in Texas, by the way, for the last 10 years have had job destruction, not job creation. And that's who we should be working for as a central bank. We work for the American people, not for the rich. So Is that outspoken enough for yeah, you? Yeah, no, that's good. I like the honesty. <laughs> Much appreciated. Uh, let me ask a naive question. How is there still $85 billion of stuff to buy every month? Don't they have – doesn't the Fed have most of it? Is there still – Mortgage we, are, and who's who are well, you buying it from? Who's still holding mortgage-backed securities that they haven't already sold to the Fed? Well, that's a great question. We we are, and it, it's a question of stock and flow. But in terms of flow, we're fast approaching 100% of the gross issuance of mortgage-backed securities, and we have about 35% of the stock of, of U.S. Treasury. So uh, now this will sound silly to you. But remember, I'm a Texan, and I do remember the Hunt brothers. And it's one thing to buy up silver and then try to sell it. Uh, now, obviously, treasuries are much more liquid. Mortgage-backed securities are much more liquid. But what I've talked about at the table and what I'm concerned about is it's different when you're a buyer. But when it's you're a seller, then you're on the other side of the market. And if you listen carefully to what you're hearing market commentators and so on, I, I it's hard to hear anybody that's really in favor of buying U.S. Treasuries here. We've driven yields to 
even though that steel curve, uh, excuse me, the, the yield curve has sharpened recently, steepened. We did drive yields across the curve through our operation twist and our expansion of the duration of our portfolio to the lowest rates in 200 and what, 37 years of U.S. history. Lowest rates of memory, certainly. There's which direction do you go from here? And how long can you do that? How long can you, even the uh, Chairman Bernanke and others have said, this doesn't go on indefinitely. And the markets have become so significantly dependent on what is the Fed doing? What I worry is we are just viewed as the ultimate solution. That's not the role central bankers should play. Even Kane said we should be thought of as dentists. You only, you only go to us if you need us. But instead, we're playing a central role in American capitalism here and in market-driven uh, side of American capitalism. And I think it's a dangerous place to be. It puts us in jeopardy. So I'm very worried about this, and I expect that my own voting behavior will be uh, reflect this concern that I just stated. I, I don't think this, these are programs that should be continued, and I worry about the fact that we've already painted ourselves into a corner. It's going to be very hard to get out of so why do you think the Fed's paying in, the Federal Reserve is paying interest on reserves? I mean, one of the challenges of this, the stranger parts of this conversation and this episode that we're talking about is that those reserves, those excess reserves, banks are holding much more at Federal Reserve accounts than they're required to by law. They're required by law to hold a certain amount. They have massively more than that sitting at the Fed, not being lent out, not being invested. Now, this idea that somehow low interest rates are going to make it more attractive to borrow and invest is only true if there's good opportunities. Sure. Usually, there's a lot of opportunities at a quarter percent interest or half a percent interest. Why do you think banks aren't lending? Why are they not lending? And do you think that the payment of reserves, of interest on reserves, is part of the problem or irrelevant? Well, I don't think any banker would like is happy getting 25, 100 to 1 percent. That's per year rather than lending it out at, say, 4 or 3 or 6%. So uh, bankers want to make loans. That's what they're paid to do. It's what they want to do. Uh, there either is insufficient demand, which I think is the main thing right now, or uh, they're only, you know, as we see from our senior lo loan surveys of senior bank officers, you know, there, there's an increased willingness to take risk. And by the way, some of the risk that's being taken is, raises some question marks, no covenant lending and uh, highly risky, particularly by the largest institutions. And you, we are constantly getting reports from smaller banks and from regional banks that the offers being made out there are considered by them to be imprudent. So there's a lot of excess liquidity in the system. I, I don't think 25 basis points is the reason they're keeping it with us. They're keeping it with us because there's a lot of liquidity out there. Uh, I, I'll give you a uh, an example of a very large company uh, that I just spoke with this morning. I survey CEOs on my own. I do it constantly. And I do it across the country, not just in my own Federal Reserve District. So this is a major company outside of my district. So for 2013-2014, their CapEx, that is capital plan expansion, for which they hire people in this very large company's case, is a little over $30 billion. They have 40, they've placed $40 billion, 40 billion, so more than CapEx, to work by borrowing cheap to buy back their stock and increase their dividend payment to hold up their stock price. Something's wrong with this picture. Now, their balance sheet is in great shape. And one of the things that's come out of this quantitative easing and also the zero interest rate, what's called ZERP, zero interest rate policy, has been that U.S. companies are now, their balance sheets are as fit and as taut and as clean and as well-structured as I've ever seen them. In my kids' parlance, they are ripped. They're ready to roll. But there are disincentives and great uncertainties out there, either about final demand or healthcare insurance or regulatory excess or fiscal policy. What will their taxes be? What will their spending be? that they're disincented from actually invested, investing in job creation. And many of them have learned that they are so productive and can produce the same amount of goods or services with <coughs> less amount of people, thanks to harnessing IT, 
the, the game seems to have changed and there's less need for the constant credit that we're creating in the market system. This is one of the reasons that I don't think we need to continue buying 85 billion. We could reduce that amount. In my opinion, we should reduce it over a clear time frame that's stated to the public. It's going to end uh, because there's an enormous amount of excess liquidity throughout the system. That's a longer answer than you wanted, but I wanted to lay it all out on the table. It reminded me of something I meant to ask you earlier. With that Fed balance sheet of, of four plus trillion dollars of a whole set of assets, a lot of it's mortgage-backed securities, some of it's not. Um, you made a reference to the Hunt brothers, a historic episode where they tried to corner the silver market. And um, so congrats to the Fed. They've, they've, they've cornered the MBS market, the mortgage-backed security market. What's that stuff worth? Um, no one talks about – well, they do occasionally, but there's very little public discussion of what kind of gains and losses that the Fed will take on its portfolio. It's usually uh, – in the early days, it was often claimed, well, they could make money on it. They could actually make a profit. I don't hear any of that well, talk. Well, actually, we did, and, and actually the chairman has talked about this. I've talked about it in others. We've returned to the taxpayer because we take our – we are a profit-making institution, but we don't pay our profits to out to the public shareholders. We do have banks that are our shareholders, the 12 Federal Reserve Banks. We pay them a preferred dividend, and then we pay what would be in a normal business at the profit uh, to the federal government through the U.S. Treasury. So we've returned over $300 billion, as the chairman has said, and I've said and others have said, to the taxpayer over the last three years. That's – what happens when interest rates go down and you have a portfolio? A lot of it's been driven by our uh, Federal Reserve New York desk operation, which trades on behalf of all 12 Federal Reserve banks and for the system. The question that you raise is an interesting question, which is if it goes in reverse and interest rates go up because the economy gets stronger or because in the worst case, people begin to impute some potential inflation, that would be the bad outcome. The good outcome is the economy gets stronger. You're holding a portfolio with an average duration that's out on the yield curve and you begin to take a loss. And just so your listeners understand, the way it's done in the accounting of this business is it's booked as a deferred asset to the treasury. Question, will Congress remember that we made three years of substantial profits uh, if, in fact, interest rates go up for whatever reason and uh, the market value of our portfolio declines. I somewhat disrespectfully suggest that Congress has the memory of fish and fish have no memory. So my suspicion is that if something were to go wrong, then they would turn on us once again, as they did very harshly uh, during the whole tarp and other episodes, put us in the spotlight and say, you lost money for the taxpayer. They'll forget how much money we made. So I think it's important that the chairperson of the Federal Reserve and Federal Reserve Bank presidents like me remind the public that we did make money for the taxpayer. In fact, we're probably the only people that make money for the taxpayer. Um, and it's not been insignificant. Well, But I'm thinking there's some accounting issues on how you measure that, obviously. And what opportunity cost you attribute to the funds, which is ignored usually in those measures. But the part I'm wondering about is a simpler question. The underlying assets of those mortgage-backed securities and what the price that they that, that the Fed paid for them, uh, how's that money going to get reclaimed? How do, How is there – are all those mortgages that are in those securities good? Are they all going to be paid back? The answer is no. Isn't there going to be a potentially large capital loss or maybe a gain? Well, first of all, the accounting for those is very interesting because you amortize these things. They're paid down over time. So it's a complex matter. And it would take me a couple of days to walk you through my old experience of having been invested in those when I ran a hedge fund and I ran an investment firm. But um, And, of course, we can sit on them till maturity. That's another possibility. And then you don't realize the loss. Your question is the underlying creditworthiness, and I'm very confident that, again, these are uh, – you went go back to Freddie and you go back to Fannie and you go to Sally May. Uh, these are securities backed by those institutions. Assuming that those institutions are sound, then uh, under the law, we are allowed to buy those 
securities. We're only allowed to buy two securities. We're unlike, the, say, the Bank of Japan that can buy anything. Only U.S. Treasuries or U.S. agencies. And those are the securities that we buy. So, but what, what, I realize there's skepticism out there. No, one more thing, I, if I may just add. Go ahead. We're the only business and the only government or quasi-government institution that posts its balance sheet in terms of what its holdings are on the net every week. So it's someone can go in, take a look at what we own, they can price them accordingly, and they get a good sense of what the market value is, even though not everything we hold is stage at market value. I have to say, but, Richard, but, you remind me of when a friend will say to me, oh, it's easy to install those lights. It's just simple you know, in my house. You don't have to hire somebody. I, anybody can do it. I'm thinking, yeah, but not me. Uh, so it may be on the web, but for most American I, citizens. I just changed all my lights this weekend, so you're right. It's not easy. I had to call in a professional to help me with three Congrats. of them. Congrats. <laughs> uh, but I think for most people, that, that task on the web is pretty daunting. It's daunting for me. I'm an economist. We're almost out of time. Uh, there is a expected change coming in the chair of the Federal Reserve. Do you think it matters? Well, first of all, to be fair to, I think there's sort of an underlying question mark there about the new leadership. When you become chairman of something, you have to conduct a committee. There are 19 members of that committee. Uh, there are 12 bank presidents and there are seven governors when we have a full complement of governors, which we don't have. And whether it's Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke or whomever be, they cannot impose their own personal views on the entire committee. They have to win the committee over. Remember, Paul Volcker got voted against several times by his committee. And he's the Moses of central banking. So uh, I think it's important to understand that being a leader is different than being a proponent of an individual view as a governor or as a bank president. Um, but uh, we'll have to see how things change. One of our big issues here is communicating with some reliability what we will do down the road and remember the parlance of the amended Federal Reserve Act 1978 over the long run. And we have not been able thus far to communicate clearly. That's pretty clear. I view my job as one of the 19 people at the table to demystify as much as possible and speak in the plainest English uh, and trying to explain what we do. And I did, by the way, take note in your Listeners might want to tap into a great interview done in the FT with Han Jun Chang, who's a what they call a reader at Cambridge University in Economics. He's a remarkable individual. Listen to this quote, and I think it's correct. Today, the economics profession is like the Catholic clergy that refused to translate the Bible. So unless you knew Latin, you couldn't read it. End of quote. Well, central bankers talk about transparency, but our discourse is still conducted in what I consider to be the economic equivalent of Latin. And uh, I'm doing my best to continue to translate for the Fed, let's call it the Fed clergy. And we're we're going to have to figure out a way to first decide what the limits are, uh, make them clear, signal those clearly by clear-cut rules to the marketplace. Quantitative easing, large-scale asset purchases cannot go on forever. You reach a point if you believe that you were getting benefits of diminishing returns, I don't believe, by the way, the program was that beneficial, but it's, you got to admit after a while, reach, things reach diminishing returns. And that'll be the task of the Federal Reserve under the new chairperson. Timing, uh, when, how you deal with markets that are significantly priced right now, certainly equity markets are in inflation-adjusted terms near their all-time highs. And... Um, it won't be an easy task, but it's the, the chairperson embodies the committee, expresses at a press conference and their public testimony for the committee, and they don't express their own views. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. My guest today has been Richard Fisher, president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Richard, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Oh, thanks so much, Russ. Really appreciate it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.